All right, John McLean, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, William. Look, I wanted to start today, I guess, by you giving us a rundown of, of your story. Uh, I guess your accident, both who you were prior to your accident and then after that as well. Um, I guess just, yeah, give a little bit of an, people a bit of an understanding about who you are. There's a lot to kind of unpack uh, over all the years, but I'll give you a kind of elevated pitch, William, and you can kind of pick up where some of the bits that you might be interested in. So as a little boy, um, a younger, older brother, Mark, older sister, Marion, so I'm the baby. I grew up in Mount Druitt, which is um, west of Sydney, for those who are familiar with that area. I used to go and watch the Penrith Panthers play football and the big dream started as a little kid, you know, wearing the, the, the team's colours to maybe hope that one day I might even run out and play for the Penrith Panthers, which happened. So I played um, under-23s in reserve grade, uh, back uh, 85, 86, so maybe before you were with us. Um, and it was a real treat to have that opportunity to to do that. Uh, a couple of years later, I was training for a triathlon on the M4 uh, in Sydney, westbound, a local triathlon called the Nepean Triathlon, Australia's oldest. And I got hit uh, by an eight-ton truck from behind, and that broke my back and damaged my spinal cord and put me into a wheelchair. So, you know, I, I kind of felt that the opportunities for sport were gone that door had been closed in actual fact um, my best mate who came to visit me in hospital once a week for four months uh, John Young um, he said let's still have a go so we tried kayaking that was our first kind of sport then I saw a hand cycle imported from the US Uh, then I thought maybe I could go back and do the triathlon that I was training for and that happened in 1994 and then we did a, a longer triathlon in Canberra and then we're watching the Gatorade Ironman on Wild World of Sports 1994, two things happened. One, that Greg Welsh won the race, uh, fellow Aussie, so that was that was awesome. And the other one was a Wuch athlete was participating in Kona for the first time at the World Championships, and he didn't finish. So here's me at home in Australia and thinking maybe that could be me. Maybe if I try, maybe if I build a team around me, um, maybe I might be the guy that might line up in 1995. So I beat uh, John Franks in uh, in May of 95, lined up in Ironman, in Kona there in 1995 and did the swim in one seven. Uh, the hand cycle was always a tough uh, thing to do using your arms opposed to your legs, especially when you consider 180 kilometers. So I missed the bike cutoff by 40 minutes, but was asked to continue, finished in 1439. I went back the next year. I got a flat on the bike, missed it by 15 minutes. Again, asked to continue. Um, so the next year I thought, okay, there's now an official category because the first two years was a demonstration event. I thought, you know, maybe this is my year. So I moved over to Florida um, to be in more of a transitional acclimatization. Um, there with the guy who built the hand cycles and racing wheelchairs. And we finally got it right in 1997. So finished in 12 hours and 21. Um, it's sponsored by Nike. So that was pretty good. And Gatorade and Holden and all these sponsors I would only dream about when I was playing footy. And a mate of mine uh, who I met at the pool, basically I had swum the English channel and he posed the question. And the question was, mate, if I can do it, so can you which then led to the new direction of, um, you know, let's go and let's go and try that. I didn't swim as a kid. I used to do a little athletics and speed was my strength in terms of playing footy on the, on the center wing. Um, but on my second attempt, I got across in 12 hours and 55 minutes. Uh, my, I started a foundation back then, uh, willing to help kids in wheelchairs around our country. So Nike made that initial contribution of uh, 20,000. Uh, today we've raised over four million, so nice to have made a contribution to give back to kids uh, across the country. 
after the channel, there was opportunity to represent at the Sydney Olympic Games as a demonstration event. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to be a part of that with Kurt Fernley. Um, many would know that name went on to have a, an amazing career in wheelchair racing. So Kurt and I had the privilege of racing at the Olympic Games uh, as well as the Paralympic Games back in 2000. And many other things have kind of uh, followed after that, William. A couple of highlights, uh, I guess, having the opportunity to represent again in rowing uh, 2008 in, the, in uh, Beijing with my rowing partner, Catherine. Uh, we picked up a silver medal from that. And then I learned to walk again after 25 years. That was a huge challenge. And then got access to some carbon fiber leg brace technology and ultimately went back to finish what I started, which was the triathlon that I was training for. But this time to use my legs uh, with walking poles for extra stability, uh, then use my arms, which is an easier option. So it was wonderful to uh, allow that dream to come true because I always thought, you know, imagine crossing the line with my wife and son, Amanda and Jack, that would be a real dream. And the dream came true. It took a lot of effort. Uh, we built a wonderful team to support and uh, and we got there at the finish line. So hopefully that's given you and some of the listeners some of the experiences since playing football uh, back in the day. Yeah, certainly one hell of a life. You've done some incredible things. We'll touch on all those sorts of things, I'm sure. But I'd love to, I guess, start by <clears throat> diving a little bit deeper into the accident, the initial stages afterwards. What was sort of your mental state and, and how did you deal with it initially in those first sort of weeks and months? Uh, great question. So I had no recollection at all from getting hit from behind by an eight-ton truck. I kind of touched on the injuries. I'll maybe go into a bit more detail. So I broke my back in three places, uh, pelvis in four, uh, right arm in two, fractured sternum, broken ribs, punctured lungs, a lot, a lot of damage. Um, so my parents were notified that I'd been involved in an accident. Initially that I'd uh, broken my pelvis. They made their way to Westmead Hospital, which was closer to uh, the scene of the accident. Mum um, and dad waited for quite some time before dad was in the room ready to go inside. Uh, the the surgeon left the room to say that he didn't expect me to live the night. So that must be very difficult for any father to hear that of a son. Um, and then the priest went in the room. So dad said that's, and my dad was not one to exaggerate. So he's passed and miss him uh, terribly. So uh, that was the extent of the injuries. And I, I, wake, I woke up briefly with this thudding sound. And that's when I was transferred by a helicopter to North Shore, one of the spinal units in Sydney. So it was my first recollection, and then I passed out again. And then I came through maybe four days later at, in the spinal unit in North Shore, and I just felt like my world had been turned upside down, literally. One minute I was surfing, you know, literally living the dream and playing footy and doing all the things that I truly wanted to do, and the next minute, you know, fighting for life and trying to come to terms with the fact that, A, you can't turn back the clock, and B, how do I make, how do I make sense of this new reality? How did you ultimately make sense of it? Were there certain strategies or, or people around you that ultimately helped that process? So how did you move forward and, and start, I guess, improving, obviously not only physically, but mentally in terms of coming to terms with what had happened? Well, that's a big one. It, uh, it's no, no one that I know or have spoken to. That's not an easy transition because it's, it's not like you break an, an arm or a leg or sprain something, then there's a recovery process and then you, you're back to what you were doing uh, pre-injury. But if you've damaged your spinal cord, then you know, you, you're not going back to playing football and running and doing the things that you had done. So that that's a an unpacking of learning to let go. And it's tough because we all hold on to stuff. Some of us hold on to stuff we don't need to hold on to. Let's call that you know emotional uh, baggage. But, you know, you hold on to the things that you love and the things that you truly care about, and that's worth holding on to. The rest of it, it's worth letting go. Example, 
it took a while for me to learn to let go. Um, I didn't want to be in a wheelchair. I didn't want to live that life. I wanted to go back to play football and do the things that I love doing. So that's a grieving process. Uh, that's a spiraling into um, depression. And that's, you know, a lot of anxiety, just that transition between, you know, four months, uh, initially everything needs to be done for you. And then you realize pretty quickly, and I, I guess I've worked out in the very early stages of my accident, when I was talking to the other guy in intensive care, he had broken his neck and he couldn't move anything at all. So therefore I'll put context to that going, you know, I'm lucky to be alive. Uh, I got hit by a truck. I don't know too many people who survived that. Um, and in time I'll have use of my upper body. My right arm was damaged due to the nerves breaking the humerus and ulna, which needed to be pin and plated. And eventually I learned to get um, feeling and dexterity back in that um, arm and hand. And then, so there's there's eight weeks waiting for the bed to come up to an upright position to get introduced to the wheelchair. When I first saw myself in the mirror, I was repulsed. So that was a real tough um, transition. Then when I was wheeled into the general ward, which is the next process to move a person through a spinal unit to get them out, to get the bed ready for the next person. Uh, the other three guys had all broken the necks um, as well. So I was always very grateful for life and also very grateful for the fact that I still had some use of my body when many didn't. So when I used to leave the room, uh, and it would take a while to learn to dress myself and to transfer from my bed to my wheelchair, I would leave the room to try hydrotherapy, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, you know, all this learning to cope with life in a wheelchair. Um, I always felt very um, fortunate that I was able to do things that many weren't. So over time, uh, when we got out of that hospital, I uh, got back to training with my best mate at home, uh, John Young. He was there to build me back up again, literally, both in the mind and also in the body. So we did a lot of training together. Um, and I pushed myself really hard for 12 months and I'm in the bedroom with my dad. And I said, Dad, you know, I'm trying really hard. Because uh, Dad knew that I was holding on to the piece about wanting to run and, and play football again. So that's when he said to me, you know, 12 months after, uh, William, he said, son, you got hit by a truck. And it needed to take him to say that after 12 months. And that's when it landed. The light bulb literally went off and we had a good cry together. And that was a long time coming because there's lots to uh, to hold on to over a lifetime. And then he asked the question and the question was simply, um, son, how far can you go? And what a beautiful question that was because that's enabled me to literally have all those experiences that we shared at the start. But also... Um, the piece to uh, not look back. And then in time, I had the courage to meet the truck driver to confront my fear. That was a fear of mine, wondering in my mind, you know, why didn't you come to visit in hospital? I wonder what happened, you know, why me? All those kinds of questions that we would all ask ourselves. And eventually when I, when I made the phone call, I went to meet with him and I'm glad I did because I simply said, you know, what is your recollection of the day? He said, I was driving a truck. I felt a bump, uh, a motorbike rider pulled me over by bipping the horn and waving to me about a kilometer down the road. And then um, I realized I've been involved in an accident. That's it. So I learned to let go of the truck, literally. I learned to let go of the past. Uh, I learned to go, okay, let's play the best uh, of the cards that have been dealt for me. And that's all I can do. So that's what I've been trying to do ever since. Yeah, it seems it would be such a difficult thing to accept, but it seems like the only way you can move forward and probably the only way you could have achieved the things that you have uh, in your life is by accepting and actually saying, okay, here's, as you said, the cards I've been dealt, here's all the possible outcomes, the possible opportunities, how far can you go, as your dad said. Um, 
was it straight after the accident? Well, obviously it wasn't straight after the accident, but how long after the accident before you started thinking about some of these athletic achievements? Uh, that was pretty quick because um, my family doctor, and I guess that's a difference between the spinal specialist and my local family doctor also came to visit me in hospital and he planted a seed of hope, William, when it was a very dark space. When I say dark, there was no light initially. And he said to me, don't worry, you're going to be bigger, you're going to be stronger and you're going to be faster. And that's all I needed to hear because that gave me a seed of hope um, that A, I'll get out of this darkness, uh, B, I'll get out of this hospital and C, I'll go back into life. And what does that mean? It means, you know, appreciate, appreciating a blue sky, fresh air, green grass, <laughs> all the stuff that we're, most of us have access to on a daily basis. But if it's been taken away, um, those are the things that you yearn for. So I held on to that for kind of 12 months. And I asked him that question many years later. I said, you know, why did you say that? Uh, his name was Dr. Gabriel. He was in St. Mary's. And he said, I saw that you were broken and you needed to be lifted up. And that's what came to me. And I'm grateful for him to say that because that's what pushed me so hard. And with my best mate, Jono, again, you know, um, working for the water board, he would make me, make us gym equipment to build ourselves back up again to get strong to take on challenges. And it's in essence to build a foundation. So we did that pretty quickly when we got home. And that then led up to, you know, having the courage and the strength to do kayaking, uh, to do the triathlon that I was training for, um, which then led on to maybe the Hawaiian Ironman and maybe there's more after that. So um, I've always had a uh, an athlete's mindset and that is that I want to try my best. One of the things that my dad said to me, which is worth sharing, William, when I was a little guy, he said, uh, sport's a good way of meeting people and making friends. So I'd like for you to do that. Uh, we as a family immigrated from Scotland uh, back in the day. I was the only one in the family born in the country, born in Cronulla, in, you know, not too far from Sydney. So he said, sport's good. So I did sport and I, I used to do quite well at sport. And he said, I don't care if you come first or last. I really don't. What I do care about is you trying your best. So those seeds were planted for, at an early age. Uh, to encourage me just to try my best and whatever the result was, you know, that was going to be the result. So I think getting back after my accident, I just kept on wondering what could I do? And I kept on looking both, and I mean this, um, I kept looking with my eyes and I kept listening with my ears for opportunities. So when I saw, you know, the Iron Man on television, literally it was talking to me because I I didn't know of any other guy in the country, you know, who was doing the sport of um, uh triathlon or as a wheelchair uh, athlete and that's when I thought you know maybe I could be on world water sport and what would that look like and maybe I could inspire kids in wheelchairs in this country and maybe around the world and so that was my mindset that um, I want to see how far I can go because that's the question my dad said and I want to be my best mate who was there when the times were tough um, and let's let's see what we can do yeah it's pretty pretty inspiring it seems like everything that you did, like you mentioned with the Ironman, you weren't aware of any wheelchair Ironman out there. How is it that you saw something that hadn't been done and you were able to believe in yourself that you could do it, could do it yourself? How were you able to push those boundaries and say, look, it hasn't been done, but you know, why not me? Why not me being the first person to do that when a lot of people would say, well, it hasn't been done, so it can't be done? Yes. Uh, I want to share the backstory because I can't take credit for this. Uh, a guy by the name of John Franks uh, was the first American to try uh, Kona. He went there in, well, I was 95, 94, 93. He went there in 1993 and just entered the race. Like didn't officially, just rocked up saying, I'm doing it. 
Um, there's nothing you can do about it. And they pulled him out saying, you can't do that. Um, there's a process in order to do that. So that's how he got the slot the next year as a demonstration event, demonstration. So that's the one that I saw uh, in 1994 when Welsh won Ironman. So he, he literally opened the door and very grateful for him for doing that. Um, but it, it wasn't open enough uh, in order to let others follow, meaning um, it, Ironman wanted to know that it could be done by a wheelchair athlete. So my, me going there at 95 and just me, or missing the bike cutoff by 40 minutes and then finishing, the total time is 17 hours. So I made all the total cutoff times in the first two attempts. Second attempt, as I mentioned, missed the bike cutoff by 15. Went back the next year. Now Ironman knew that it was very close to getting done. So they started the first ever wheelchair category. And it was the first three guys who qualified in uh, half Ironman. It was in Lubbock in Texas. So now um, we were able to open the doors for others. And just to kind of fast forward that, a girl called Lauren Parker, who I met kind of five years ago, uh, she had an accident on her bike, ended up in a wheelchair. She had raced Kona as an age grouper. Uh, she went back to Kona this year and completed the course. So, you know, and there's the sport of paratriathlon at the Paralympics. So back in the day, someone had to open the door, and let's call that John Franks to start with, and then I kind of picked up the ball from there, if you will, or passed on the baton. And, you know, it's nice to see paratriathlon at the Paralympics, and it's great to see Ironman embracing the sport and allowing wheelchair athletes around the globe to participate. Yeah, it's fantastic that they and, and the Olympics get around it. And really, it, it's even more inspiring and more, uh, I guess, motivating than than sometimes the the typical you know, Ironmans, because, you know, it, it just goes to that extra f level of showing you the what is possible if you really put your mind to something. Why do you think that you were so drawn to athletic achievements? Obviously, you spoke about how you loved sport, but when someone went through what you might have gone through, they would have basically put athletics aside and they might have thought, oh, I might go down a different road. I could ha have success in different areas that aren't physical. Why is it that you still decided, you know, physical can still work? Um, I'm going to kind of answer that in a couple of ways, if I can. One, that the dream for me was to be a fireman, you know, and play footy because footy is only for a short period of time. That's what I was kind of thinking uh, pre-accident. Post-accident, I literally felt that there was no way in the world I could participate in sport because, you know, I played football and I was a I was a fast runner. So I didn't see a life of sport post-accident. But what I did see um, was that opportunity. And I'm going to say Ironman... Um, was a big opportunity. I wanted to do the triathlon that I was training for with my best mate because that was my mountain to climb at the time. I'm a big advocate for confronting fear. Uh, what you hold on to in life holds on to you for your life. That's a long time. And we all hold on to stuff. So I wanted to use that as an example that I don't want to... Uh, I'll share an example. So I got my hand cycle and I rode past where I got hit by the truck. And I did that with my best mate. And that was an example of confronting fear. Another option there would be, you know, never to get on a, a hand cycle uh, ever uh, and therefore never confront that fear. So I'm glad John and I did that. I'm glad I got a chance to cross the finish line at the local triathlon in 1994. Um, there was a lot of fear around that initially, William, but when I crossed the line, I felt equal to others. Um, when I did the Ironman and crossed the line and made all the cutoff times and got my finishes medal, I felt equal to others. So what I found out was, um, there was absolutely a life after uh, in sport after my injury. And the more that I explored, the more that my life uh, continued to unfold. And, you know, here I am today, all these years later, looking back saying, 
you know, I know what change is. I've experienced it literally by getting hit by a truck. And if we can confront our fears to have the courage to, to at least try, we can move through that and therefore um, move on to take on challenges and not be held back by the fears that lock us in. That's really, really interesting take and I think really important for people in their own lives, however small or large the fears, to, to definitely confront them. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment called The Book of Five Rings and it's about a samurai from Japan called Miyamoto Musashi. And he talks about, well, one of the main quotes that I guess the book is built around is it's once you see the way, you will see it in all things. And it basically talks about how he was able to have a large amount of success with the sword and then ultimately he took the strategies and he took the learnings from how effective he was with the sword and became a master of all these different other arts and crafts in Japanese culture. How much of that do you think played a role in your mind once you ticked that one box then it gave you confidence to to see it in other different areas so once you finished the iron man on a local level you were able to go overseas and do it once you did it there you were then able to try running and, and swimming the english channel do you think that that was something that every time you achieve something you were even more hungry for achievement and you had a better understanding of how to come about it great question um sounds like a book i should read it's uh, it's interesting because I like I like the piece about why are we confident when we're kids? Why do we try, and then why do we stop trying? Let me give you an example, and then I'll come back to circle your your question. But when we're kids, uh, we try because we we don't have the filters that tell us that we can't. An example, you know, maybe you've got a a bike and it's got training wheels on it, and mum or dad or grandma or grandpa. You know, so the days come to to take them off, and you know they they watch you, and that's and you and the child, just as an example, on a bike, and a child has the uh, euphoric moment of being free, right? Taking off the, um, taking off the wheels, uh, as an example. So then, over time, we take on dialogue. That's self talk. We take on what we see, what we hear. Uh, and then we start to apply internal brakes. So essentially, we're putting back on the training wheels and we're applying the brakes on, on the bike. So what I have learned through much trial and much error, um, if we can let those brakes go, if we can be in the moment, and that's very easy to say, but very hard to do. If we can be in the moment, then the possibilities are literally endless. So for example, to come back to answer your question, after I'd finished the Ironman, I didn't want to go back and do an Ironman again because I had had that experience or to use an example, uh, a flavor. Uh, there are many flavors of ice creams. I'm sure I, I'm a fond, <laughs> I love ice cream. There's many different flavors. Okay. So therefore, yeah, there are many different flavors to explore or options to, um, to seek. So after that, when I met a gentleman at the pool, um, Ian Byrne was his name, solicitor in Penrith where I was living at the time. And he swam the channel. He simply said, if I can do it, so can you. So here's a whole new opportunity. And therefore, I now longer, uh, I, I didn't have the breaks. So I didn't say to myself, I can't swim the channel. Um, only marathon swimmers can swim the channel. Uh, I said to myself, I wonder what will happen if I try. And if I try, maybe I can. So therefore, it's that way of thinking as a younger person, because we just innately try. And therefore, we can go back to that and you know let those breaks go. We can go many places and you know uh, he was right it took my second attempt to get across mother nature was kind was difficult on the first attempt after nine hours um but i was lucky to get a second opportunity with my team and 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 we we got across so therefore you know 
he was right. And therefore, I would say, having had many experiences, if all of us can just go back to trying and stop this self-talk or self-sabotage around, you know, I can't or I'm too old or I'm injured or just excuse, excuse, um, and we can start to uh, explore, I've come up with a methodology that's helped me change over time. Happy to touch on those, but it's just this piece around if I try, what will happen? If I try, what will happen? And the more that I've done that, the more that I've found out I went a lot further than I initially thought I was capable of. Yeah, that's it's definitely a very good thing. And I think a lot of people really should be stopping with those ex- excuses and giving it a go. I think the hard part is that people aren't so worried about whether or not they'll achieve it, but when it comes to physical things, they're worried about it being too hard even during the process. So how did you go about dealing during the, say you're halfway through the English Channel or halfway through an Ironman, what sort of strategies or methodologies did you have to to keep on keeping on? Let me give you an overview on the methodology that helped me get out of a hospital bed to go and do the Ironman and so on. So the conversation is change. So therefore, um, we often need to change many things in order to achieve something that's new or exciting or forced. Example, um, the truck was a forced change on me. I didn't choose to get hit by a truck. The world didn't choose to uh, have a global pandemic. That's a forced change. So therefore a choice change, you know, I choose to change because the company's changing and therefore I need to adapt and mold and transform. Or, you know, I see a new opportunity or so therefore I need to change some areas. So what are the steps? One is the individual has got to want to change because if he or she does not, you know, it's not going to happen. So the first step is map out the plan. So let me use the English channel as a, as a good example. So what did that look like? Pretty simply, it was, a, it was a big, large map. One country is England, the other country is France. And in the middle of it, it's a body of water. It's called the English channel. So I've got very clear on you know mapping that out, therefore building a team to support. Next one is critical is mindset. Number one, map. Number two, mindset. What's mindset? Mindset is the ability to talk yourself into something or the ability to talk yourself out of something. Example, um, okay, I've swum, I've done the Ironman. Um, I, I believe I'm good enough. I think if I just keep putting one stroke in front of the other, I might be a chance of getting to the other side. So it's a positive mindset versus a negative. Uh, you can't do it. The water's freezing. You know, you could do the Ironman, but you can't swim the channel. Just that example of uh, negative self-talk. So that's a mindset. Number three is the mentor. I got access to Des Renford, the late Des Renford. He'd swum the channel 19 times. So what do, what do you learn from a mentor? Uh, he or she will not knock on your door. You need to knock on theirs. Um, and they have knowledge. They have insight. So therefore, you have to go there to ask them questions to enable you to have your best chance of being successful with your change goal, mentor. Next one's the motivation. I never needed motivation at the start of an Ironman. I needed it towards the back end of the marathon um, because that's when you need them. It's the same with the English Channel. You don't need it in the first couple of strokes. You need it on the last kilometer, you know, when it's getting really, really tough. So motivation, find your own motivation. Uh, different people have different forms of motivation. Movies, books, people's quotes, many examples. So find the motivation to support the change. And the last M, M5, is momentum. Get in the pool. Um, start your first stroke. Measure your journey. Um, and that way, when I've applied those five M's, it has literally taken me from a bed to the Ironman and beyond. So that's the steps to methodology that has allowed me to change. Um, and I keep putting those principles in place, William, and it keeps on working. So here's me thinking, if it can work for me, you know, hospital bed in a spinal unit has to work for everybody else. Definitely. If 100% uh, people, that's what I think so great about your story is that it will, 
it will make people reflect on the limitations that they put on themselves and, and really start to break those down and start also achieving things. And I think what you mentioned there, that fifth one in particular, momentum, it seems like that's something that has played a really big role as kind of, it seems like there's almost a snowball effect with the achievements you've had. You start off with something small and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more frequent. And obviously momentum helps with that. Kind of going back to what we were saying, that once you achieve something, you now have more confidence that you'll be able to achieve that second thing and that third thing as well. Um, I guess wrapping up, not quite wrapping up, but reflecting a little bit back on everything like that, uh, you received an Order of Australia medal. I guess that's a pretty outstanding achievement and I'd love if you could to talk a, a little bit about how that felt in a reflective sense looking back on everything you'd been through. That was a huge honour. Um, I think, you know, you, you don't do, I certainly didn't, I just did what I loved to do. I set myself a challenge. I built a team to support it. Um, we didn't always get it, but most often we got close uh, and there was a moment to celebrate. So that's um, that's a nice piece. Another one to kind of share with you before we go on to the OAM was um, the importance of finding something that lights you up. So what lights me up? Um, I, I like an idea of working towards a challenge. I like to have a goal for myself. People ask me this question often around, uh, you know, what does success look like? And I know some people that have some very large figures in the bank and that does not equal success, believe me. In my, my way of thinking from a near-death experience, it's about having a goal for you because it's your life, however long you have left. Um, for some of us or most of us, uh, certainly as we get older, those days are getting less. So what are you doing for you is the, is the question there. Um, goal for family, uh, that's where you start and finish. Goal for business which supports the first two. Golf with community, this opportunity to give back uh, and to encourage um, others to be better. So OAM, uh, when I had received that, that was my contribution to sport and contribution to the John McLean Foundation, helping kids in wheelchairs. Um, I felt very honoured to have that um, that privilege bestowed upon me. It was special that my dad was there as well to, to see that. Clearly he had seen me in my darkest times. Um, and it was nice to kind of share the, the wonderful times, including the Ironman, and, you know, a few other things that have happened over time. So I think um, it was a, a huge privilege and um, I, f I felt very honoured to, to, to join the club. It's certainly an amazing achievement. Um, you touched on your foundation there. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and the work you're doing through the John McLean Foundation. Yeah, so Nike gave me this check before swimming the channel um, and it was for a significant amount of money, $20,000. I couldn't William, I didn't know who should get it over another organization. So I thought long and hard about it. And then I thought, what if I start a foundation and therefore people can become a member of the family of the foundation. And therefore in time, if they struggle, they can always come back to the foundation. Maybe they want to be a podcast and we would introduce them to you or that could be IT or whatever their interest might lie in. They can connect back to the family of the foundation. So it's means tested. We help kids right across the country often single parents, uh, request the many from, you know, a racing wheelchair to a hand cycle to a basic wheelchair to a musical instrument to a computer, so on, so on. So for those families who can't afford that, we help to bridge that gap. And going back to my dad, he said to me as a young guy, you know, it's better to give than receive. Now that's hard to hear when you're a little kid around Christmas time. Um, but as we get older, you know, we know that to be true. It is better to give than receive. So um, 
the foundation meet tomorrow, uh, ironically, to discuss the next round of grants. So JMF, johnmcclainfoundation.com.au is the website. And we try and give back and make a difference. So um, if people are interested, interested, please check it out. And um, we'd love to have your support. Yeah, it seems like a fantastic initiative. I'll certainly be looking into it and checking it out. Um, you mentioned your dad in a lot of your answers, and you've also mentioned your, your best mate and how he was helping you with some of the exercises and the equipment. It seems like you've had a lot of good people around you who have helped support these things, and you're always referring to, to building a good team. How important is it, is it to build a good team around you to achieve these sorts of things? Well, it's critical. Um, you know, like, let me give you an example. If... If you achieve uh, something that you've worked really hard towards and there's no one to celebrate that with, it's kind of a sense of being empty. So um, Professor Yo, who was my spinal specialist when I had my accident, would always talk about sharing the journey. And you know, going back to the triathlon in 1994 using my legs and crossing the line, um, the picture that I had in my mind, because I started with the end in mind, that's a, not my quote, that's a, a Kobe quote, but it made sense to me, start with the end in mind, that you know, if I could cross the uh, finish line with Amanda and Jack, that's that's my team. Um, that would be an awesome picture to add to the collection. And it took a lot of hard work and we did that. So there is a photo, um, which I have etched in my mind, but also one that I can visually look at from time to time. And that's really special. So that team is the most important team. And you know, it's really special. So it's about identifying the things that light you up, whatever that is, building a team to support that, trying, getting back to trying, um, applying effort because life requires effort. And if we do all those things, it's highly probable that we'll get a result that's better than what we started with. And if the case, that's often, you know, it's the journey, isn't it? Not always the destination. So I have to acknowledge all the people that have supported me. Um, and it was really special to for us as a family to have had that moment in time crossing that line because uh, literally it took 26 years to happen. That wasn't something that anyone ever thought was going to happen, let alone the guy getting out the wheelchair and taking steps after 25 years and then you know, having access to the carbon fibre technology. I'm very grateful to Darren Piera and Neuromuscular Orthotics for providing that uh, support and the leg and the braces and the uh, walking poles. But we got the job done. So... Um, Everything that I've ever done has been a part of a team and um, I'm always grateful for those people for, for their ongoing support. Yeah, I think, as you said, extremely important. And I think even though you may not know it, I think that the support you provide to people by talking about these sorts of things and ultimately the achievements you have had and the inspiration that you are, I think supports people on their own journeys as well. So I thank you for that and I'm sure a lot of other people do. Just as a final question, is there is there one final thing that you've learned that you think most people could I guess, leave listening to this podcast with that would be helpful for their day and whatever they want to achieve? Yeah, maybe I should ask the same question that uh, my father asked me because that opened the door to, to all those experiences. And it, it, it is truly a beautiful question. So, you know, how far can you go as an individual, a person? How far can we go as a team if we belong to an organisation or a corporation? You know, if we put our collective wisdom together and we surround ourselves with people who lift us up, uh, there are many examples of that for all of us, but equally, there are many who are more than happy to pull us down. So my advice would be to avoid the people that are trying to pull you down, surround yourself with the people who are trying to lift you up, um, back yourself, um, believe that it's possible to at least try, and if you will, then your life will be better, full stop. So um, how far can you go? 
John McLean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You've lived an inspirational life. It's an inspirational message, and I think it's going to help a lot of people, both with your foundation and then also your message as well. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, William.